sometimes in life you want something to happen before you're actually ready or prepared for it to happen and that's how i feel about this conversation on the free your energy podcast let me give you a little backstory I was doing some writing one day and listening to music and I had a station on so it was playing random songs that I had never heard before and then all of a sudden I just heard this voice in the background Um, it sounded like a movie I felt like when I was writing I was writing a script for a movie Uh, And so I paused my writing and then I said, "Okay, like I need to listen to this song. So I started the song over and I listened to this song. And then I said, well, I need to listen to this. This artist, like, who who is this? So the artist, her name is Uriel. And I immediately looked her up on, you know, YouTube and spotify itunes i just got all of her music right away so i listened to her music for a few months and then something said sylvester she needs to be a guest on the free your energy podcast so i pulled up her website i found a place to contact her and i reached out told her who i was and you know what we do here on the free your energy podcast and just pretty much invited her on but here's the thing that our initial contact was in december i believe of 2019 in december of 2019 i was not set up to do guests who weren't in the studio with me because i i had the local studio here in uh tempe arizona that i was going to so what ended up happening is I expanded my platform and the softwares that I use so I could host external podcasts, uh, talks and interviews with people who aren't near me. I have to give Uriel credit for that because it was me wanting to connect with her over her art, over her story that pushed me to expand my brand, my offering my knowledge of how I could present my own art. Uh, And so that's why I said what I said at the beginning about how, you know, sometimes you want to go to the next level and you're not ready. But this is why I believe and why I always preach that the next level will get you ready for it when you're actually ready for it. And with that being said, we're going to dive right in to my conversation with Uriel. Right now, I'm in um, North Yorkshire, which is um, where my parents live, and that's uh, where I also grew up. Nice. For the for the record, you are my furthest uh, podcast guest. We we are actually. I'm about to look it up. I want to see how far apart we are. I'm about, I'm about to look that up right now. Oh goodness! And yeah, <laughs> let's see. You said you grew up in North Yorkshire. That's so right. So what's 
what's that like? Like what type of what type of town is that like? Like, describe well, it to me. So in uh, a little bit like you have states in the USA, um, here in the UK, we have um, counties. Um, so North Yorkshire is actually, uh, I think it's possibly the largest county in the UK, uh, or it's certainly one of the largest. Um, and uh, my parents are in the, the northeast part of it. Um, and their specific area is actually um, like a, an area of outstanding natural beauty. Um, so it's a really, really beautiful, picturesque place to be. Wow. Is it like mountains? Is it hills, prairies? It, like It's very hilly, actually, around here. Um, my parents' um, place, uh, <laughs> it's actually, uh, I shouldn't probably shouldn't say the name of it um, specifically, but it's um, the name is sort of inspired by the fact that it's on a, a big ridge, a big hill. <laughs> Every, uh, no matter which direction you approach this place from, you have to come up a, a big hill to get here. Uh, so it's kind of if if you ask anybody uh, who uh, has a vision of um, of England, they they tend to think of these sort of rolling green hills with beautiful forests and streams and lakes and meadows um, and moorland. Uh, and the UK, uh, sorry, um, my parents' area, North Yorkshire, is um, is exactly that essentially it's it's the sort of quintessential english countryside that that people mm, tend to okay. picture when they think of yeah. of the uk so growing up there what was, what was it like for you like say let's just say the age of five six seven five mm-hmm. six seven that's when we kind of start getting our memories yeah what were some yeah. of your first memories and what were you doing around that time gosh uh well i was always an extremely busy child. Um, I, as well as going to school six days a week uh, and being in all the the sports teams at school, uh, I also, at one point, I mean, in, in fact, around this sort of uh, 10 years old mark, I think, I was going to, after school, um, a local performing arts school, uh, which is sort of where I, I first got into uh, my my performance training as a dancer and a, a singer. Um, I was going there five nights a week uh, after school, uh, and I was also having private um, piano lessons as well. Uh, and at the weekends, I was competing um, as a horse rider, riding ponies, which I did very seriously um, from the age of uh, sort of seven upwards until um, about seventeen years old. Um, so life for me, uh, you know, as a child was, was really action packed. Um, I never really had, um, you know, a moment to, to rest, but, um, it was actually a very, uh, idyllic childhood. Uh, I had very supportive parents. Um, I mean, they themselves, they came from, uh, a very poor background, uh, both of them, um, in a, a town, a northern town in the UK called Barnsley. Uh, and so they um, never really had the opportunity to do an awful lot of the things that they wanted to do outside of school. Uh, but my my dad um, was determined that uh, he was going to make a better life for any family that he eventually had. Uh, and so he he worked his his socks off at school to to get all the necessary qualifications to get into university, 
uh, to qualify as a dentist. Um, and that's what he did. Uh, and then just he got out of Barnsley um, and eventually ended up settling in, in this house where they are now. And they've been for, I think, about 50 years now uh, and built you know, their, their life as a family from there. Uh, and they were, both of my parents, determined that any children they had would have, uh, you know, the opportunities that they weren't fortunate enough to have as children. So like with my mum, for example, um, she loved dancing and she did do a little bit of dance training, but I think that had to stop because her parents just didn't have the money for it. Uh, but she was a very promising dancer. Um, she also has uh, and, and had, you know, particularly when she was younger, a very nice voice uh, and would have loved to have had singing lessons and, and piano training, but her parents just couldn't afford that. Um, and, uh, you know, so they were um, determined that their children would have those opportunities that they weren't fortunate enough to have. And so I, I was incredibly lucky in that not only were my parents financially in a position to be able to support me in everything that I wanted to do as a child, but also that they were willing to do that as well um, and really, you know, wanted for their children to pursue their their passions and their interests. So um, I was given the opportunity as a child to do uh, pretty much everything that I, I wanted to do. Um, and consequently, uh, as I said, you know, I was extremely busy. I was also doing singing competitions um, as well. That was another thing that um, I was doing regularly too. So, uh, and private singing lessons, um, uh, yeah, so <laughs> a very, very busy childhood, but also a very uh, idyllic and, and a very happy one. And then with your with your family, was what are the ages of like you, your brother? Do you have a brother or sister? Are you the mm -hmm. only child? What's kind of like the breakdown of, of the full family? I have um, three older brothers. Um, so I'm I'm the only girl and the youngest, which um, actually I think... The more the the older I get, the more I I realize that the fact that I am the only girl and I and that my brothers were all older than me has actually I think affected my life and my ability to um, to go about my career in what is uh, it's it's sort of quite well known that the music industry is in terms of uh, the people who are in positions of power um, are still sort of uh, most of the time, the majority of them are, are men. Uh, and, you know, much is sort of made of that. Um, and, uh, you know, feminists in particular would really like to see that change. Uh, and, and rightly so, of course. But for me, uh, I guess I think the fact that I've had three older brothers and I've grown up in that kind of male-dominated household has actually set me up to be able to, to navigate through the music industry um, and do well from that situation, uh, you know, where most of the executives um, who can help me with my career are, are men. Um, so it's, I'm actually very comfortable with that. Um, and I'm, um, I don't find that to be a problem. If anything, it's, it's been a good thing for me. Um, and I do kind of put that down to having three older brothers. Um, I think that's definitely helped me. 
That's very important. On mm. one of the previous episodes, we were talking about, uh, I had a guest on, He he's a yoga teacher, spiritual guy from um, Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how essentially, you know, men and women have different energies and how there's, you know, your masculine energy, your feminine energy, and how once you can understand the energy of your, your own, right, your own in, in, inner energy, and then you can see how other people, how they interact, how they think, how they, how they process things. Mm-hmm. Once you kind of put that together, it just gives you such an advantage over everyone else because you're not left in the dark. You see things exactly um, how they are. And it's, it's really amazing that I think you had those brothers to really help you understand masculine energy almost as a way to help guide you in your profession. Um, yeah. And, and to protect you essentially. Mm, mm. And starting so young as a singer going to the competitions, uh, doing the dancing, you know, that's a very vulnerable, very vulnerable thing for any person to do, but especially a child, um, because people can see talent and they can say, hey, I want to, you know, uh, be a part of that or, or, or leech on or. So did you have, and maybe you weren't aware of it then, but maybe it's something you're more aware of now. Did you have more of a protector? Like was, was your mom and dad kind of protecting you at different events? Like were they shielding you, guarding you and just like, you know, making sure you were safe or were you kind of just given the the free will to just go out there and just kind of do things on your own? Like how was your protection I would say, when um, you were younger? Probably actually more the, the latter. Um Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, you you cut off for a second. Um, I thought you'd finished <laughs> finished speaking. Sorry. Hello, can you hear me? Oh no. Oh. Yep, yep. I can you hear me. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, good. Sorry. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Do you want to repeat the the last bit of what you were just saying? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was saying that you know when you're younger, uh, you're you're much more vulnerable because you're younger. Mm, yeah. You're more impressionable. Um, and I was wondering if you had any like protectors, like were your brothers protecting you, your mom or dad, you know, when you would go to your dancing events and your, your singing events, yeah. did you have anybody there protecting you and guiding you, giving you advice, things of that nature? Uh, I mean, most of the, the competitions I went to, um, particularly, I mean, the, the dance competitions, um, and also, you know, because my dad was busy working, of course, uh, it was my mum taking me to most of them. Um, although my dad did uh, come to some of the uh, the horse riding competitions that I did, because um, the ones that were further afield, he would need to drive the, the lorry, the horse box, um, which, you know, wasn't very comfortable for my mum to do. So um, he, he would um, come along for those competitions further afield where we, we had to go in the horse box. But most of the time I was going with, um, with just my mum. And I mean, I never, I wouldn't describe myself um, as a child who ever really needed to be protected. Uh, I was always sort of pretty not um not overconfident i was never certainly never arrogant i mean my you know my parents made sure that i was kept uh, well and truly grounded um but i was confident in myself and and not the sort of child who sort of needed to ever really be shielded from from anything nothing nothing ever would really kind of upset me that much um you know and Luckily for me, um, you know, some children, they, they get picked on and, and bullied um, by other children. But um, for whatever reason, um, 
I don't think that ever happened to me um, or certainly not that I can remember. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think obviously they were, uh, my parents were looking out for me for sure. Um, and, you know, if, if they ever needed to step in, um, you know, and, and protect me, um, then they were there to do so. Um, I can only actually remember one occasion, um, really as a child when, when that happened, um, I was at a, a horse competition and, um, at this particular competition, it lasts for several days and you stay there, um, overnight, um, for about three days. And, uh, I'd gone out, there was like a fairground, um, at this particular competition in the, the evenings. And I'd gone out with uh, a friend of mine who had a friend of his tagging along with us who I'd never met before. And, um, unfortunately it turned out this friend, uh, of my friend, um, had a bit of a, a gripe with some other kids, um, who were at this competition. And as we walked into the fairground, these kids just appeared from nowhere, um, and launched onto this, this poor young boy. Uh, so my friend, um, then tried to pile in to, to pull these people off to help him, uh, whereupon, you know, two young girls who I think were twins set about him and started attacking him. And I thought, oh, man. and I was just like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, I was the, just standing there watching this thing unfold. And I thought, well, I've got to do something. I, I, you know, I didn't, <laughs> probably wasn't really thinking, um, clearly. And, and I went and tried to get hold of these two girls to pull them off my friend. And they then turned on me. Um, and it, this is, God, I mean, it makes it sound like, you know, I was a kid who got into fights or something. I mean, I wasn't. That's the one and only skirmish that I've ever been involved in. I think I was about 11 at the time um, or 12, something like that. And so it just uh, eventually I think some people came along and the whole thing got broken up. And I just remember ending up um, sitting in the security office of the the people doing the security for this competition, being asked, you know, what had happened and everything. And my parents obviously, you know, found out and and came along. And uh, and I I just remember I was shaking, um, <laughs> you know. And and the main thing I was really petrified of was um, I was I had a pony at the time who was very well known because he was a very successful pony when I was riding him and I was just terrified these kids were going to go and do something um, you know to my pony probably the the par paranoid irrational thinking of uh, a young girl but you know that was my main concern and I was shaking uh, <laughs> with the fear and and from what had happened um, so my parents had come along obviously and tried to sort of comfort me that time and everything but other than that um like I said I was always a very kind of confident child um and uh I I did well at most of the things that I competed at um you know dancing singing sports horse riding etc um so I um I, I guess that gave me confidence. For me, there was a confidence in being successful at um, the, the various things that I was trying to to do. Um, so yeah, and and that and like I say, I, I never got picked on. I don't think by any other children either. Um, so really, my my parents never needed to kind of be protectors um, when it came to me. They they more just sort of said, you know, off you go, do your thing and, and good luck. <laughs> Pretty much. Good luck. Yeah. 
So by the time you got to, and you'll have to correct me, but mm-hmm. over here in the States, we have, you know, we have high school and then we yeah. have college. I know you guys mm-hmm. usually refer to it as university. Mm-hmm. Is the high school you went to, is that is that just a regular high school or is that more of like a performing, performing school? It's like a singing school. Like, what was that like? So high school um, for, I guess you mean that's where I was between kind of 13 and um, 17, 18 years yes. old roughly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that was just uh, like a, a standard school. Um, there are some schools in the UK where children can... Uh, they they can study all the normal subjects, but it's uh, very much a kind of arts focused um, school. Uh, the secondary school that I went to um, in the city of York, which is the the capital of um, the county Yorkshire that I'm in, um, uh, that was not uh, like a specialist school. It was very much like a, an all round school. Um, however, they did place quite a, a strong focus on things like, as well as um, anything academic, um, on sports and on on music as well. So were you going to lessons and doing things after school as well? Like, what, like was high school just as busy as it was when you were younger? Well, when I uh, went to that secondary school, it was um, a lot further away from the performing arts school um, that I'd been going to when I was at my previous school, um, when I was younger, what we call primary school here. Um, so my my parents knew at that point, you know, something had to give. Um, I was such a, a busy child and it just wasn't going to be possible to be going um, as much as five nights a week as I was um, at one point, as I mentioned before, after that school, um, all the way from from there to that performing arts school. Uh, and at that performing arts school, um, the main thing that I did there was dance lessons in, in various dance disciplines. Um, and we knew, although, you know, I was quite a good dancer, um, that that wasn't going to be my career. Um, so at that point, you know, that was the, um, the thing that, that had to give. Um, and, uh, so I, you know, I still continue to be a very busy child. Um, but I think apart from, uh, you know, dancing, um, the dance lessons, getting the acts, um, when I went to that secondary school, uh, the thing that did kind of really step up, um, at that point was, um, my, my horse riding, um, and I was doing, more and more competitions um, at that point um, throughout secondary school. So I was still really busy. Um, so, yeah, I, I still had a lot on at that point. So the horse riding, this mm-hmm. is something I'm from Chicago, Illinois. That's where I'm born and raised. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest cities in the world. We, we don't have horse riding. So mm-hmm. for people like me and people who are listening that have no idea what this is like, um, as especially from like a competition, like what, what is it like? What would, you know, is it, is it a, a sprint race? Is it like you're running a couple of, of kilometers with the horse? Like, are you jumping over things? Like what, what's a competition like with your horse? Well, there's, um, there's several areas of horse competition. Um, 
the main ones are probably horse racing, which of course most people have uh, seen at some point. Uh, and that's obviously all about the the fastest horse. Um, <laughs> uh, and then there's show jumping where um, horses have to jump over um, very kind of colorful courses and they've got to, the, the jumps are usually very big uh, and they've not got to knock anything down um, or stop at anything. And they've got to, um, uh, if they go into the what they call the jump off, they've got to go around that as quickly as they can, again, without knocking anything over or stopping. Uh, and then there's um, a third area, a uh, major area called um, eventing, uh, which is um, where a horse uh, and their rider, they have to do uh, like a, a dressage test, uh, which is kind of for, for people who don't know anything about horses, that's kind of almost like dancing for horses essentially with with no jumps involved and it's definitely not about going fast um and uh then they have to do um they have to go like um cross country um so they jump rustic kind of uh obstacles um and go through uh water splashes and and things like that um and that is also partly about speed as well and and fitness um and then the again the the third discipline um, as part of eventing is show jumping, um, which I just described a moment ago. So uh, my parents actually used to breed horses for the the latter um, discipline for uh, eventing. Uh, so that's actually basically how I got into horse riding in the first place because um, I, I think I was probably put on a, a pony or a horse before I could even walk. Um, so <laughs> I caught the bug um, for, for horse riding from being very little. Uh, and still now, you know, to this day, um, I miss, I had to give up the competition um, that I was doing, um, which is actually a whole new area. I'll, I'll tell you about this in a second. But um, I had to give up the kind of competition that I was doing uh, when I was um, 17, 18 years old. Uh, to focus on preparing for music college. Um, but the the kind of um, competition that I did uh, was something that they call showing, um, which is basically sort of the, the specific kind of um, discipline that I did within showing uh, involved jumping over obstacles, um, like rustic sort of looking obstacles, but which could e be easily knocked down. Um, and again, you know, you were marked on... You, you were meant to not knock anything over, not stop at anything. Um, but unlike show jumping, you're also marked on your style as you go around. Um, and then you have to do like a, a kind of dressage test after that. Um, but then also the, the pony or the horse is marked on what they call its confirmation, um, which is essentially, you know, how well its body is put together and how suitable it is for this particular um, discipline that I was doing, which was called working hunt ponies. So they had to look a certain way as well. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that was what I did. And I did that, um, pretty seriously, uh, from like, say, I think I was, uh, about eight, uh, when I, I got my, my first pony who was, um, the first pony that I had who I, I won at, um, horse of the year show with, which, um, horse of the year show is like the, uh, the most prestigious kind of competition in the UK, uh, it's an annual thing uh, that you have to qualify for. 
Uh, and it's the most prestigious competition in the UK of its kind. Um, so the yeah, I had one pony um, who I, I won that with um, in the year 2000. Uh, and then my my next pony as well, um, I I won again with him um, a few years later too. Um, with that second pony, I, I represented uh, England for um, three years, I think, as well. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that's what I did essentially um, in the horsey world. Uh, but I, I still miss um, the you know the horse competition. Um, I in another life I would have been a professional horse rider, um, but I knew uh, you know in this life singing was was my thing, and, and that was the thing that. I most wanted to pursue as, as my career. I think it's so interesting how as human beings, we are able to tap into different skills and, and, and throughout our life, we have different things that we can do well. And yeah. you're doing the, the, the horse, you did the horse jumping well, like a, well above average. It wasn't like you weren't just like a regular person, like you're winning competitions and, 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 and doing well and representing a country. And, that is to me is so honorable. And I think that's a part of when we're talking about just freeing our energy and just freeing ourselves. I think that's one of the things that we have to do is like we have to realize that we are in our life. We're going to be good at multiple things and yeah, we have maybe. to allow ourselves, you know, we got to allow ourselves to like when you were younger, you know, you were a great dancer. But then you kind of listened and looked to your life and you're like, OK, well, it's time to time to maybe take a, a step back from that. But you're dancing really catapulted you uh as a as a horseback rider and really helped you excel there and then you you invested you put your time into it and then your life was like okay well hey it it's time to go to singing now and then you know you get into your singing your singing uh college on scholarship to sing and now you're in the phase of your life where singing is you know where you're expressing yourself the most and i just think it's so beautiful when we just listen to our life and we just listen to the path and we just kind of allow ourselves to flow with the way life wants us to flow. So, you know, you get to you get your scholarship to singing. Like, how does mm -hmm. how does that process even work? Is it like an audition? Do you have like tapes? Are you doing this in front of directors? How does how does one audition, you know, for a scholarship per se? Like, mm -hmm. tell me about that part of it. Well, I had um, uh, at my uh, secondary school, what you call high school, um, uh, a, a vocal scholarship uh, to study uh, there, uh, which meant that I got my singing lessons free there. Um, and I did have to do like a, a specific audition for that. Um, I think I had to go in and, and sing some songs for them in front of the uh, the head of the music department there and do some other um oral tests um, and things like that. But um, I also, when I went to the Royal Academy of Music, um, I got a, a scholarship um, to study there as well. Uh, and so that involved me traveling down to London. Um, I'd spent, after I left uh, secondary school, I spent two years preparing to audition at the conservatoires in London um, because they prefer you to be a little bit older as a classical singer before you uh, you audition um, to study as a singer so that your voice is, is ready for the training that they put you through there. Uh, so that's why I, I waited. I didn't just go straight from secondary school. I spent those two years preparing. 
And then I, I went down to London um, and I auditioned at um, the, the Royal College of Music, the, the Guildhall and the Royal Academy of Music. Um, and the latter was the one that I got into. Uh, and I actually remember um, when I went down for the audition at the Royal Academy, I had caught a cold and I was really uh, stuffed up in my, my sinuses and, and my voice just, you know, was not um, on form. So I was, uh, you know, dreading this this audition because I just thought, oh, no, I'd never get in because my voice is going to sound awful today. Um, but I thankfully they were very understanding and I, I did, um, I think I got the opportunity to tell them, look, just so you know, I've caught a cold, so I'm not going to be 100% today. But um, yeah, I, I had to sing some songs for them. Um, I think, again, I was put through some uh, kind of oral tests as well, like sight reading and things like that. Uh, and also, um, I think a bit of music theory um, I was tested on as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's what that um, audition process looked like. So um pretty terrifying and and actually one of the well sorry uh one the place that I got at the Royal Academy of Music uh was one of only six places available for the undergraduate course um in that particular year um so um yeah I was very relieved to get that so only only six people mm -hmm. uh got the placement that you got yeah. wow yeah. Do yeah, you know exactly. do you know how many uh people applied? Uh oh gosh. Um I have forgotten the exact amount to be honest. Um the the number of applicants versus places awarded. Um but I think oh, I I'm just guessing at this now. I think there are at least 100 people um auditioning per place. So it was um pretty competitive to get in there. Um the other colleges took a larger number of people, I think, in each given year for the undergraduate course. But for some reason at the academy, they took a really small amount um, for the undergraduate course. So, uh, yeah, um, I was very lucky to get that place. And at this point, were you putting putting out any music? Had you had you started working on any projects yet or were you still in more of a training mode and like learning your voice? Uh, I was still, when I first went to um, and started at the Royal Academy um, in training mode, uh, and it took um, a couple of years so, or three years, I think. Um, I went there, started there in 2007, and I didn't meet the uh, the person that I started um, work on my first album with until 2010. Um, so it took, took a few years for me to find the right person, um, to actually start co-writing and producing my first album with. And when you found the person to do your first album with, like, how did you know, like, how did you know, okay, this is the person that I want to, I want to work with? Well, uh, partly because of the the people that he had worked with before, um, which included some other uh, classically orientated artists, like um, people may know Catherine Jenkins um, over in the US. She's certainly um, one of the, the most well-known um, classical crossover artists here in the UK. Um, I think Russell Watson as well um, is a, a similar sort of artist. He's in uh, the, the kind of classical crossover genre too. 
Um, but also Ryan, uh, his name was Ryan, um, Ryan Laubscher is his real name, but um, he goes by the, the producer name Ryan Lauder now. Uh, he also had been classically trained like me. Um, he had gone to the, the Royal College of Music and studied composition there. Uh, so that was uh, another thing that um, made us connect um, and be on the same wavelength musically. Uh, but we, um, t- you know, to be sure that we were going to be a good fit musically, um, we got into the studio together and just started co-writing some songs and recording some things, you know, just to see if it was going to work um, before, um, you know, completely committing to um, making an album together. Do you remember the first song that you guys recorded? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, the very first song that we did. Uh, honestly, I can't actually remember which of the songs on my first album was the first song that we recorded, but I do know um, that Carry Me, um, I think was one of the earliest songs that we co-wrote and, and recorded together. Uh, And Carry Me has since gone on to be one of my most successful songs. Um, And that song, I mean, it's funny how things go because, you know, some of the songs on the album, we, it it took uh, like one of them in particular was a work in progress for more than a year, um, which was City of the Dead. Um, And that's one of the other songs on the album that's been the most successful um, on my first album. Um, But Carry Me was... Uh, one of the the songs that was the most easy to write, um, as I remember it, it, it just sort of flowed out of us, um, you know, very naturally and, and very easily. Those are two songs that I really like. The City of the Dead song, the just the poetic element, just as a writer. So I'll tell you from a, from a writer's ear, you know, I'm always looking at all different types of, of media, whether it's a, you know, movie, uh, TV music and I'm always looking at the writing like I'll watch a movie and then I'll say oh, I wouldn't have wrote that scene like that or a character says something and I'm like no he shouldn't he should have been he should have been quiet right there you know and like with City of the Dead it's such a for it to be your debut album and your very first line is I'm scared of what's inside my head it's just like whoa wait a minute you want me to listen to your whole album and you're already scared of what's inside? Okay, cool. <laughs> Show me some more, you know? Yeah. And then and then you're like, well, what's inside of my soul? You know, I feel like I'm running, but getting nowhere. And just as a writer, you know, that's a, that's a paradox. You know, mm. I'm running, but I'm mm. not getting anywhere. That's a paradox. So mm. essentially like in that very, the very opening, I'm just like hooked. I'm like, whoa, this is, this is phenomenal writing, mm. you know? And obviously uh, for us, or I should speak for myself, for me living in America, I don't really hear uh, the term that you've been using is classically trained. Like I don't Mm -hmm. usually hear what I feel like is a classically trained voice. So I'm I'm at this intersection um, where I have this classically trained voice, uh, very like harmonic sounding music, and Mm -hmm. then the poetry of the actual lyrics. And I was hooked. I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is exactly what I need in my life right now. And it's funny that I was listening the very first time I heard your music, I was in the gym working out. And, you know, usually people are working out to more music that's like, you know, uh, more more bass, more beats. It's like yeah, more up, yeah. upper tempo. But mm-hmm. I'm like listening to your album and I'm just destroying my workout because it got me in <laughs> such a like transitive place in 
oh man, I was just when I listened to that, uh, the City of the Dead, I just had to keep listening. So I just listened to your whole album, you know, all the way through. And I noticed that you actually, um, especially on your second album, you have some songs where you're singing in a different language. And I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if that was French. Like what what are the other languages yeah. that you know? Yeah. Uh so I mean, as part of my training um, I, I had to sing songs in, uh, French, um, Italian, uh, Latin, um, Spanish, um, German as well. Uh, so that, that was all part of my training. Um, but also when I was at school, um, the one academic gift, um, if, if you could put it that way that, that I had was, um, was languages. Uh, I always, um, picked up on languages and found them, I wouldn't say easy to learn, um, but relatively easy to to pick up. Um, so that was, it, you know, something that I wanted to take forwards um, into my career as, uh, as a songwriter as well was to, um, you know, take what I had learned um, through my training uh, and at school as well, um, studying languages and use that um, in my in my music because I think, um, I mean, the, there's a song on my second album called uh, Petit Papillon, um, for example, which uh, it sounds, it just works in French. Um, that, so that song is, is in French for anybody who, who isn't sure. Uh, and I can tell you now, if I translated that song into English and sung it in English, uh, uh, sang it, sorry, in English. Is <laughs> uh, me saying I was quite good at languages and I can't, I can't string a sentence together. Um, yeah, if I had uh, sang that song in um, in English, it would have sounded terrible. Um, it just doesn't work at all in English. So that's part of the reason why uh, you know I've used um, foreign languages in some of my songs because. It, it just sounds better when it's sung um, in, in that whatever language I've chosen for that particular song. So how many languages do you know total? Uh, oh, gosh. Well, in terms of languages I have um, sung in, there's Latin, um, Spanish, French, um, German, Italian, and I even recorded something uh, in Basque recently for a soundtrack composer too. So I guess I think that's six languages. That's six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I only, uh, in terms of um, the languages that I studied at school, um, French was the the language that I took the, the furthest uh, right through to A-level. Um, so by the time I, I got to A-level, I was almost fluent in in French um but as they say you know if if you don't use it uh you lose it (laughs) and um I've I've obviously not really needed to speak in French um very often since I left school so sadly I'm not um as fluent uh, as I once was uh, once was in French but um I can still, uh, you know, understand it well enough um, to to write uh, and to certainly to to pronounce it anyway, which is obviously wow. the, the main thing. So on your second album, uh, Goodbye Butterfly, you had just mm-hmm. mentioned uh, the song, the Petit Papillon, yeah. but you have two versions. You have the alternate version mm-hmm. at the very end, and yeah. then you have the original version. What is what was the the logic behind um, putting the two different versions uh, on on the on the final cut of the album? 
Uh, actually, um, to be honest, that was uh, so the guy that I co-wrote and co-produced my second album with. Um, he's a, a soundtrack composer and a songwriter called Charlie Mole. Um, he, I didn't know that he was going to make this alternative version um, of Petit Papillon, uh, but he is half French, um, by the way. So uh, that sort of partly explains um, the the style of the alternative version, which is uh, even more French um, than the the main version. You know, you've got the uh, accordion in there, for example, uh, and just the way that it's orchestrated and everything. It really kind of um, evokes, I think, uh, an image of, of quintessential France. Um, so actually, um, I can't take any credit uh, <laughs> for the fact, um, in all honesty, that that alternative version was created because he just did it um, and then uh, presented it to me as a surprise and was like, hey, what do you think? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, actually, you know, I love this. Um, fantastic. <laughs> okay. You know, we've got two versions of the song now for the album. Okay. And then on on your on your second album, uh mm-hmm. Goodbye Butterfly, you have a song Servant to Love. Yes. Talk me through that process of reco- recording that song. Um because that song is your highest your highest note on the album, mm. right? You you sung on yeah. that one. Yes. And then you also right. had the chorus in that song was an English chorus, but mm-hmm. what's the what was the other language you were singing the verses in? Uh, that was in Latin. Uh, in Latin, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I did that for two reasons. Um, one is that, you know, because it's Latin and obviously most people don't speak Latin anymore, it has a, a kind of air of um, mystery about it. Um, and given the the subject matter, um, the, the actual real-life inspiration for the song, uh, I I wanted that. That was a deliberate choice. I wanted it to be uh, mysterious, um, uh, to sort of slightly shroud the, the the true subject matter that that song was based on. Um, so only really anybody who actually uh, seeks out the the meaning of those lyrics could get uh, more of a, an insight into what the the song is about. Well, I ha- I have an idea. <laughs> go on. I'm not 100% sure. Uh-huh. But go on. just judging from the way you were singing the chorus, this is just my interpretation. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of it's like when you just when you just fall in love with someone and it's just like it's like easy to to just love this person um and and to be loved by them and you just kind of become Almost like a, uh, you know, like when a little kid is watching TV, like you can't even talk to the kid. They don't know what's going on. They're just like in this trance, you know, like they've become completely as a servant to the TV. I feel like that's kind of where the person was coming from in this story is they were just submitting to to, hey, I'm I'm just here to love you. Like whatever you need, whatever I can do to love you. That's what I'm that's what I'm here for. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You're you're definitely picking up on the right vibe there. It was uh the song was sort of essentially saying, you know, I I surrender myself um to to this love um because uh you know, no matter how hard uh, I um may wish it uh not to have been the case. Um in fact actually I, I don't um I don't regret it, but um it, essentially it's a song about forbidden love um and Mm. so um you know 
obviously, uh, in some ways, um, it's extremely difficult um, to have to deal with a situation like that. Um, but it's it's a song where I'm basically sort of putting my hands up and saying, yeah, you know, I love this person and um, I can't help it. And no matter what I do, you know, those feelings just aren't going away. So, uh, you know, I surrender myself to that and I'm I'm just going to go with it. And then with the forbidden love, the element is for whatever reason, it's like the two people can't be together or quote unquote mm-hmm. shouldn't be together. But yeah. then that emotion is still there, like regardless yes. of what it looks like on the outside to everyone else. It's, hey, I know what this feels like and I know how I feel. So instead of it, it is so it's so interesting because a lot of people go through that. And it's one of the things where we can't talk about it openly because there's so many, you know, we need to be able to trust that I can, that I can share this emotion with you that I can share like, okay, you know, let's, I'm just going to make up a hypothetical situation. Let's just say, you know, I love uh, a lady who's been married for 10 years, you know, and she's got a husband and they have two kids together and that's someone I love. Well, am I wrong for loving her? You know, like, is it really, really wrong? Like, is it like, should I shame myself for, loving her. Mm. And I don't think so. Like, I don't think you should. Like, maybe the, the situation is not ideal and it's not perfect for, for all parties involved, but the actual emotions that you feel, I don't think you're wrong for feeling those emotions. And you shouldn't, in my opinion, you shouldn't like shame yourself for those, uh, for those emotions because it's love is love. Mm-hmm. It's like, you can't always... Yeah. You can't exactly. always predict how it's going to happen. You know, it would be so beautiful if we could all just meet each other at at 18 right out of high school or, you know, and just be with each other. And that's it for the rest of life. Like that would be like just the best story ever. Right. But that's yeah. that's just not how it works. Like there's so many stories where the forbidden love is actually the better love or the more potent mm-hmm. love or the love that people actually want, you know, the the most or that's the person they want to be with. And, you know, it's such a. Uh, it's something that I actually want to explore in the novel I'm working on is uh, a person wanting to be with someone, but they can't really be there. But those feelings are completely present. Mm, so, mm. man, you just made that song hit me so different because I've been trying to figure it out for so long. And now I'm like, all right, I got it. Now. Yeah. Well, now uh, you, you, I guess you, you see the, the reason um, for the use of the Latin um, in the verses. Uh, you know, as to um, like say that sometimes some things, if you try to say them in your mother tongue, they just sound kind of clumsy. Um, but if you put them into another language like Latin, somehow they sound, you know, so much more poetic um, and, um, uh, you know, exciting. So, um, yeah, that that was the one of the main reasons behind the, the choice of the Latin for that song. Wow. So powerful. So as an artist, you know, I have eight books out and, you know, the podcast and a bunch of videos. And what I realize as an artist is, you know, your readers, your fans, they kind of they kind of pick what they love the most and, mm-hmm. and they make they make what they want to be the most popular, the most popular. But to you as an artist, that may not be what you love the most out of your out of your work. So um for me, I know my care package book is a book that my readers just like absolutely love. Mm. Um but it's not my most recent book, right? My most yeah. recent book is called Free Your Energy. And with you, I believe, and you can correct me, but I believe your Carry Me song and your City of the Dead, those are your most popular songs so far, right? Yes. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and 
Carry Me, um, I mean, Carry Me was already doing pretty well um, on its own um, before this this thing happened. But um, back in, I think, 2016 or 17, um, some rappers, uh, you may know of them um, because they're uh, American artists. I had actually never heard of them before. Um, I'm not really into rap. But um, these artists, a trio um, of rappers called uh, collectively known as Migos, um, they sampled Carry Me uh, and they they did they actually did it without my permission um, as it happens but I found really? out about it. yeah um, so that actually also um, just sort of helped I guess to uh, drive even more um, new listeners to to Carry Me as well. So before I go on the question I was going to ask you how do you I'm sure it's mixed emotions right but how do you feel about that when you know, another artist, especially these are professional artists, mm. um, you know, they're signed to, I believe there's, those guys are signed to Universal. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, they, they should understand kind of how the, how the music industry works, mm-hmm. um, getting things cleared and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how did that make you feel initially as an artist to, to hear your voice on music that you didn't necessarily authorize? Well, I mean, Mixed feelings. Uh, when I looked these guys up, because I'd never, like I say, I'd never heard of them before, um, I discovered that I think all three of them have um, got into trouble with the law um, quite a bit, uh, and including for things like, I think, carrying firearms um, without a, I think, without a license. Um, I mean, don't quote me on that. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure, but, uh, and drug, um, offenses. Um, I think one of them had been involved in, um, fights when he was in a jail as well. Uh, and so I, you know, obviously as a, an artist who's really not, um, into that whole kind of, um, gang life, um, I, I obviously sort of project a very different kind of image to that. Um, it was not something that I wanted to be associated with. Um, however, obviously the, um, the businesswoman in me saw, uh, an opportunity and, um, you know, that was the fact that I knew, um, as they had done this without permission, um, had they come to me up front and asked for permission in the first place, uh, you know, what they would have had to give me um, in return for that, considering how big artists they were relative to me, um, you know, would have just been, I'd have probably just got some small um, cut of the the master royalties. And that would have been about it, I think. Um, you know, whereas, uh, as you know, anybody in the music industry knows if you get caught sampling a song without permission and that song has done well, which in this case, you know, the track they sampled my song into um, was being treated as the lead single of the the album that they were releasing. Um, and this had been reported on um, by major music publications like uh, Pitchfork, uh, who had specifically actually commented on the the sample that they had used uh you know the, the if you do that um it's sort of well known in the music industry that you're going to have to uh probably compensate the person whose um property you've sampled uh a much larger amount um than you would have had to give them if you had done it with permission 
so, I mean, you know, that they went and did this without permission was uh, on their part um, quite surprising, really, um, especially, you know, as, as big artists, it was almost inevitable that um, I would find out about it at some point. Uh, and sure enough, you know, I I did. Um, I mean, I can't uh, say anything about the, I had to negotiate settlement deals because um, I, I owned the, the master of the song that they sampled and I was also um, a co-writer of the song they sampled. So um, there were two settlements that had to be negotiated with them. Uh, and that took a very long time and it was um, extremely stressful. Um, but um, like I say, the, both of those settlements, um, they have uh, big confidentiality clauses in them. So I'm, I'm not actually at liberty to say anything about the, the settlement gotcha. deals themselves. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, uh, quite surprising really, um, that they, they did that, but then, um, I, I was told um, by somebody that it wasn't the first time that they had sampled someone's music without their permission. So um, I think they they had a bit of a track history. Um, or that's that's what I was told anyway of of doing that. Your song "Carry Me." Uh, to I mean, just a phenomenal song. Do does that situation? Um, that stressful situation that you went through, does that mm. change your relationship with the song Carry Me, especially because it's one of your popular songs? Um, it's certainly not in a, a negative way. Um, I, I don't think it's really sort of made me see the song any differently. Um, if anything, to be honest, it's maybe endeared it to me um, even more uh, just because, um, you know, if, if somebody... Um, as famous as as those rappers uh, thought that the song was was good enough to sample into one of their tracks, then um, you know, uh, no matter what I I think of Migos themselves or their music, um, I see that as uh, a compliment um, uh, and a, a sort of affirmation of um, you know other people obviously think this song's quite good, so. Um, yeah, uh, if anything, it, it it endeared the song to me a little bit more, actually. That's exactly how I feel. Um, I had a similar situation uh, just as a writer. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about the same stuff is, you know, you're you have the masters to your music. You know, I have the trademark to my books. So, you know, what happens is. Uh, I just feel like anytime you can inspire someone that I mean, that's a great thing. I feel like also if you're inspired by someone's art. I, I feel like there's a proper way to, you know, re respect it and, and pay homage and, and, and show that love that, hey, mm -hmm. this person, you know, inspired me to create this or, you know, you don't necessarily have to go out of the way, but you just don't steal. So yes. what ended up happening yeah. is I I saw a book that had some words that looked just like mine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I bought the book. I bought the book because I was like, okay, well, I saw it online. That looked kind of interesting. So yeah. I looked through and I'm just looking at the words and I'm like, wow, this is kind of similar to what I'm writing. Yeah. And at first, the very first emotion, I was angry. I was very, very mm -hmm. angry because mm -hmm. I felt like what they were trying to do was they were taking the lines that I was saying and then they were just reversing the lines. You know, they were just changing the structure yeah. of the sentence, but trying to get the exact same sentiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
I wanted to make a big deal about it. I wanted to call this person out. I wanted to pursue legal action and I chose not to. I chose to just yeah. leave it be because I, I think for me it was I think it was confirmation, like you said. It was just confirmation. I was, you know, they I was like, you know what? You're watching, you see what I'm doing, and what for whatever reason you're inspired by it and you wanted to to move your own art forward. I couldn't be mad at it. It wasn't completely yeah, yeah. in my situation. They didn't completely like, you know, for you, your voice was used for me words. You know, if you manipulate words, you can do it to a way where it's like, well, you don't own those words. So that's why I said, you know what, I'm going to let this go. And it really made me have a better relationship with my art. It made me realize like as an artist, like if other people are willing to be inspired by what you're doing or uh, mimic it or copy it or even steal it. Like that means you're doing something good, you know? And it was such a confirmation for me. Yeah. And what yeah. I'm, what I'm wondering is when this is what I was going to ask you before that, before that came up is of your songs that maybe aren't as popular as your other popular songs. Mm -hmm. What's one or two of the songs that are very just close to you that you just, that you just love. Like if one of my listeners was like, okay, I want to hear one of her songs that's not as popular. What would, what would they go listen to? Hmm. Um, I mean, one of the songs say on my first album, Arcadia, um, that I, when, uh, Ryan and I wrote that song, um, and recorded it, I thought to myself, this is a song where Ryan and I are just indulging our own musical tastes and it's probably not going to be one of the most successful songs on the album, um, but I love it. Uh, and that song was Hate Me. Uh, and actually, much to my surprise um, and, and uh, happiness uh, to see it, uh, it um, has actually gone on uh, on both YouTube and Spotify to be one of the most successful songs on the album. Um, and, and as for my second album, um, Goodbye Butterfly, uh, on that album, um, I would say uh, it, it's not sort of uh, at the moment. It's, it's still early days, so um, it's the, the the album's still kind of bedding in on the streaming platforms. But um, early signs are that Petit Papillon um, will be or, or is at the moment the the most popular track. Um, and uh, you know the the other song that we released is. Um, uh, a single um, and was intended to be one of the lead tracks um, on the album and for me uh, is one of the the standout tracks musically um, is As the Skies Cascade um, but at the moment um, that's about uh, fourth I think or or it's, it's slightly lower down in the um, the Spotify analytics compared to some of the other songs on the album. Uh, but for me, uh, I just, um, I love that song. I, I love everything about it. Wow. See, that is, that's why I wanted you, you on here, because when you can get an artist's perspective of their own art, it gives you such such a great appreciation uh, for the journey. And I know that my listeners are going to gonna tune in and the Goodbye Butterfly album, that's your most recent one. And your first album uh, was called Arcadia. And it's so the reason that I like 
the the spacing of your albums is it took you five years to do your first mm-hmm. album mm-hmm. and then about four years to get this album out so mm-hmm. i know that you're not just sitting around saying oh i just need to make a song just to make a song like you're okay. sitting with your art and you're invested in it and you're listening to every little detail plus yeah. you're recording with your some of the songs you're recording with the orchestra right yeah well and, and like my um, other singers yeah so my my last album um was done with uh, a full orchestra um a 36 piece orchestra uh and there was also um a pianist uh a bass guitarist and an acoustic guitarist uh and a choir a 16 piece choir um and charlie the guy that i co-wrote the album with he played uh, clarinet um, on the album and also programmed all the strings uh, sorry all the um, the synth instruments so uh, that album was um, in terms of all the the live uh, real musicians who were engaged for that was um, a, a really huge production for me um, and you know when it came to my first album um Although ultimately a similar amount of um, money went into everything to do with that album, um, at the time that uh, we actually uh, recorded it and had it produced, uh, given the the producer's fee, um, we just weren't in a position to, um, you know, put any more music, uh, sorry, money um, into recording with a, an orchestra for that album. Um, but, uh, you know, in in this case, um, for my second album, I sort of, um, balanced, uh, who was getting what in terms of the team that I was working with, uh, a bit differently, um, than I did my first album so that I could then, um, afford to hire an orchestra. Um, but, uh, for my second album, I was funding that, um, entirely myself, um, through revenue I'd received, um, largely through Arcadia. Um, whereas, you know, with my first album, um, I had help, um, from my parents, um, and, uh, an ex-boyfriend, uh, to, to make that album. Um, so yeah, I was in a very different position financially, um, when it came to making my second album and, um, I mean, part of the reason for the gap between the two albums, apart from the fact that it does take uh, quite a while to to make my songs, um, they generally take uh, quite a long time to to write um, and then obviously record and and fully produce and mix and master, um, was the fact that uh, just, I think it was just as I released my first album, at that point um, I split up uh, from the person uh, who had co-funded that first album with my parents. Um, and I'd been dating that person for seven years by that point. Um, so it was a pretty big breakup. Um, and I went from living in his house and, and he was a very successful person. Um, so it was, uh, you know, a nice house. Uh, and I'd, um, you know, had a lot of support from him. Um, but I'd say that relationship didn't work out. So we parted ways um, just as I released my first album. Uh, and so it took, um, you know, a bit of time for me to, because I had to go back to renting um, and sharing a property with multiple other people. Um, and really at the time when I split up from that person, um, my income was almost zero because I had given up working in um 
doing waitressing and being a, a receptionist in restaurants, which I'd done um, throughout my time at college and and beyond that um, for for a while. Um, and and I'd gone full time um, to try and get my music career going, which you know was the thing that I'd I'd known forever that was the the thing that I really wanted to do. Um, so it took from the point when I released my first album in um, the end of 2015 a couple of years to really establish any sort of um, income that was. Um, uh, you know, allowed me um, to even think about starting work on a, a second album. Uh, and then the Migos thing happened. Uh, and, you know, fast forward to the end of um, when I'd finally negotiated the settlements with them. Uh, and I was um, then finally, you know, in a position to uh, be able to afford to um, fund my my second album and to have it recorded with a real orchestra and a choir um, and one of the best uh, conductors in the industry um, and engineers as well. What a journey! Wow. Yeah, yeah it was um, a difficult difficult few years, um, but. You know, those those years were actually probably the the making of me because I was forced um, for the first time in my life to stand completely on my own two feet and become completely independent. So no parental help, um, no boyfriend, no nothing. It was all on me um, finally to uh, find my own way and make my own living. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you know, I I grew an enormous amount as a person in those four years. And so Goodbye Butterfly and, and everything um, that I wrote about in the songs in, on that album uh, essentially encapsulates everything that happened from the point when I split up um, from that guy I'd been with for seven years. Um, and, you know, between then and, and when I um, started writing the, the songs for Goodbye Butterfly. Wow. See, and that just that just brings it full circle. So now when we go listen to Goodbye Butterfly, which is streaming on iTunes, Spotify, you have songs on YouTube. Now, when we listen to the songs, we have not only a deeper connection to you personally, but we have a deep connection to your story. So when we're listening to these songs that are essentially all short stories, uh, mm -hmm. we just get to really just feel it, you know, and that yeah. makes it for me. I just feel like as a listener, that just makes it so much more um, impactful. Um, mm -hmm. So I, two weeks ago on the podcast, we had uh, Megan Tandy on. and She's an actress uh, in Hollywood right now. And she's on a show called Batwoman. And she was talking about, we got into a conversation about how with artistry and, you know, she's an actress. So, but with artistry, there is an element where, you know, people look at artists and they assume that all artists are rich. <laughs> like they assume that, mm. okay, you're an author, you sold a couple books. That means you're a multi-billionaire, you're a millionaire. And like you just have all this money or maybe someone like you, like, you know, you have two albums on, on iTunes and, you know, millions of views and millions of streams. So they just assume like, you know, you're a multi, mm. multi-millionaire. And, you know, even with her, she's a working, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> she, she's a working actress on a current show that's on TV. And with yeah. her, like people just assume that she's like a quote unquote rich person. Mm -hmm. And we got into a conversation where we were talking about the working actor, which is literally 
all of us we're we're working and we're trying to like within being a, an actress or an actor she said that 90% of the time you're in an audition like you're just trying to audition to get jobs and what i loved about your story is how you mentioned how the different jobs that you're doing you know receptionist um being a server being a waitress things of that nature to you know help you get to where you, you want to mm -hmm. go so where are you at now are you at a point where uh, you have kind of like multiple multiple jobs you're doing plus your music career, or are you able to uh, sustain your life solely off your your music career right now? Uh, I'm very lucky in that um, I ever since I released um, Arcadia, um, I have been able to do uh, what I'm doing full time. Um, I mean, I, I had uh, a little bit of support from uh, from my ex um, boyfriend that that guy I'd been with for seven years, and um, from my parents um, just for a bit until um, I, you know, was able to pay all my own bills um, after he and I split up um, because you know my ex boyfriend he knew that I was going from uh, you know. Um, a situation where for the most part um, I was sort of dependent on him financially while I was trying to launch my career uh, to, you know, suddenly uh, that obviously wasn't the case anymore. Um, so he did very kindly um, help me for um, a few months after he and I split up um, just to sort of help me uh, on my way um, and ease the the transition from being dependent on him financially to um, you know being able to to pay for pay my own way uh, and my parents also sort of took up the um, the slack um, a little bit as well um, just to to like say ease that transition um, but um, after a while I thankfully I I was able to make that transition. Um, and it, um, you know, took, took years, um, for my income to build up to, uh, anything like a, a sort of a decent, um, livable level. Um, and I say, uh, by livable, I, I mean, um, you know, that you could actually think about maybe buying a bottle of wine with, um, you know, your weekly grocery <laughs> shop at the supermarket, right, you know, right. rather than thinking, mm, uh, I can only afford, you know, the, the cheapest um, pack of veg and, and whatever else at the supermarket. So, uh -huh. um, yeah, you know, that that was a, a slow process. But once the, the ball got rolling, um, I mean, for me, I... Um, my income comes predominantly from streaming. Um, so my music being streamed on, say, Spotify, YouTube, etc. Um, and from what I know um, of other artists, I'm a, a member of a company called the FAC, which is um, the Featured Artist Coalition. It's a British company. And they represent uh, other recording artists like me. Uh, and I, they, they sent a survey once to their members, uh, asking them to sort of go into some detail about their income streams, just so that they could get a picture of how artists were earning their money, uh, independent artists uh, in particular, um, as I am. And I responded to this survey uh, and later went to one of the events where um, I think they were sort of, uh, you know, discussing the, the results of this survey. And um, one of the ladies from the company came up to me at the end and said, oh, you know, by the way, just so you know, 
Um, I, and I'm pretty sure she said that the figure was 5%. She said, you're in the one of the only um, artists, only artists, sorry, in, in the 5% um, of 100% of people who responded who was able to make a living out of streaming. Um, and I just remember the the rest of the artists at that meeting all saying that they were living essentially from gig to gig financially. Uh, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, I am so glad um, that I'm I'm not in that situation where I'm thinking, you know, if I don't get another gig and if it doesn't pay a certain amount, um, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent this week or this month. Um, because for me, I had a steady uh, stream of income coming in um, in the form of, of streaming revenue instead. Um, so I... I mean, I was quite surprised when she said I was in one of only like 5% of the people who responded who was able to make a living that way. But um, that's what she said. So um, and that's that's still the the case for me now. Um, streaming is still my my single largest source of revenue by um, by a long way. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in the, the present circumstances, um, where you know so many artists around the world have been obviously hit extremely hard by the the virus situation and they're not able to perform at the moment and get that income um i'm considering myself extremely fortunate right now that um you know that that just wasn't even really an income stream for me because i i only sort of do a handful of live performances at the moment as Uriel. Um, so there was no income stream there from live performance really to be knocked out um, for me. Um, so I'm, um, I'm very fortunate in that respect that um, for me, you know, I've, I've got a good back catalogue of music out there um, and I'm able to still, uh, for now anyway, um, have quite a, a steady uh, income stream from that. Um, I did see a few days ago, the analytics dipped, um, quite sort of dramatically, um, on my streaming on, um, both YouTube and Spotify. And I thought, oh, um, you know, is, is this where things are about to fall off a cliff? Um, but thank goodness, um, they, they rebounded, um, and then have, uh, stabilized and carried on growing in the, the normal way, um, that, that my stats have been following for the last few years now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I consider myself one of the lucky ones at the moment. I love how you're laced with gratitude and appreciation for the position that you've earned and that you've worked for your entire life. I, I can appreciate that as an author, uh, same mm. thing. I'm an, I'm an independent author. And, uh, for me, I didn't really want to sign to, I've gotten offers. Um, I just didn't really want to sign to any of the publishing companies because I really liked the pace that I write at. And I like yes. to be able to control yeah. my content. I like to be really become one with my books and I never wanted any pressure to change and, and, and to fit into a particular mold. Mm. Um, I really just wanted to make sure everything I was creating was coming from me from like a genuine soulful place. Yeah. Yeah. And so as an independent artist, like I totally understand, but also the thing is, and you know, you take that risk, you don't have support, you don't have a guarantee, you don't have backing. 
you're literally banking on your work touching other people mm-hmm. and, and, and other people appreciating what you're doing. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's a huge exactly risk. That. It's such a huge risk. And for you to mm-hmm. be in that 5%, um, I'm just, I'm so grateful for you just as a friend that you're, you're okay and that you're able to take care of yourself off of your art. And it's something that I personally don't take for granted. You know, like I would be nothing without, without my listeners, you know, without my readers and and them just, you know, supporting what I'm doing, you know, with the books Mm -hmm. and the podcast and like my courses. And I I don't take it for granted because, you know, I just feel like when you're able to go to a place where you can create soulful art, art that means something to you, that there, there's a story behind it that you're inspired by is real. Like the art makes you cry, makes you laugh. Like when you can create from that place, I feel like that that is the most impactful art that people can take in, whether it's a movie, a song, a book, you know, even just a skit, you know, and just as a friend, like, I'm just so proud of you that, that you've got to, to this place. No, thank you. Yeah. I hope, I hope my, my people, you know, go check out the the Goodbye Butterfly album. Uh, Man, it's such an experience listening to your music and as well as your Arcadia album. What's going to be next for you uh, for this year? Obviously, that's a hard question to answer Uh because we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, again, I mean, things I I think the timing of how everything's happened, like, you know, I I just got my last album out, um, Goodbye Butterfly, in December last year before anybody um, in the Western world really knew anything about this this virus. so, you know, I, I, I'm looking back now and thinking, oh, thank goodness that I managed to get that out before um, social media became totally flooded with everything about the virus. Because I, I think promoting a new release right now would be very challenging because obviously most people are sort of pretty preoccupied with one thing and, and one thing only, um, beginning with V right now. Um, and uh, as for like... Um, orchestral recording sessions um they have all obviously stopped um that's just not happening right now uh and i would be surprised if any uh orchestral recording sessions um or any kind of recording sessions where there are multiple players in a studio at any one time uh i'd be surprised if many of those happen before the end of this year um it's looking you know like uh it some of the the earliest sessions might even um, not happen now until next year. Um, wow, okay. I'm, I'm hoping that by the time I'm ready to actually uh, record my my next album, uh, which I'll tell you about in a second, um, that the the situation with the virus will be um, under. Uh, well, a lot more under control than it is now, uh, and that orchestral sessions, uh, recording sessions, will be able to go ahead again. Um, so, uh, you asked me about my plans for this year. Um, so, the first half of this year for me was um, largely sort of um, allocated in my mind towards doing the, uh, the the second phase of the promotion for Goodbye Butterfly. 
Uh, and that's, I've already done the kind of public release campaign, um, which was the thing that, of course, uh, anybody following me would have seen um, all over my social media uh, leading up to the release of that album. Um, but now I'm in the, what I would call more the behind the scenes phase of the promotion of that album, which is things like, uh, you know, PR. So reaching out to people to try to get reviews, um, and writing to radio stations to try to, um, see if, if they might be willing to playlist some of the songs from the album and, um, writing to people like music supervisors, um, who are the people who pick songs, um, you know, to use on things like TV series and, and films. Um, uh, so I'm, behind the scenes I'm kind of working on all that stuff at the moment uh, and it's it's a very kind of uh, lengthy process because uh, there's you know there's a lot that's involved in that there's a lot of research to do to, to find the right people to to write to um, and then find their contact details and then actually write to them as well and and hopefully then have a conversation with them um, so that's what I'm up to at the moment um, and I uh, was planning to start work on my third album uh, in the second half of this year. Um, so writing and recording um, sort of over the second half of this year and uh, over the, the first half of next year uh, with a view to uh, probably and hopefully um, all being well doing uh, another orchestral and maybe choir um, if I need a choir a uh, recording session maybe in the the kind of summer of next year uh and then um releasing that album sometime um probably i don't know uh autumn ish um or maybe uh winter again um for my for my third album um but uh, alongside that um my album plans I have also got um, a couple of soundtracks coming up, um, one for an Amazon fantasy series um, and one for uh, a BBC nature series. Uh, and there are a couple of others that I'm really hoping um, I might be able to get involved with too, but um, uh, I'll just have to wait and see with those. Um, but the the first two I mentioned um, they're just, they're in the very kind of early stages of production. Um, so with uh, soundtrack work, you know, you can record on something, but you can never be sure that it will, what you've done will actually be used pretty much until it's actually released. Um, cause things are always, always changing, um, with, uh, you know, production teams when you've got, uh, lots of, um, chefs stirring the pot. Um, you know, you've got the producer saying one thing and the director saying another Another, and then the composer's saying something else completely. And um, so all in all, you know, if, if you end up um, as a soloist on the final um, soundtrack <laughs> when it's actually released, um, you know, it's, um, well, certainly for me anyway, it still feels like um, uh, an achievement and a, a big relief. So, um, yeah, for now, you know, I have the opportunity to record on um, these two soundtracks coming up. Um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, um, my voice will still be there um, at the end of it when um, when those things are released as well. Well, I'm happy for you, especially because you you have some type of vision still. You know, some people have lost a sense of their vision, mm. and Corona has actually helped some other people find 
a sense of vision and, and find exactly what uh, is important to them and exactly where they want to spend their time. And I'm so yeah. grateful that to hear that you do have that vision of, OK, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't do everything that I want to do, but there still are some things available to me and I'm accessing them. And that is the epitome of what we're talking about when we're saying, hey, you know, free your energy. You're you're still freeing yourself and just doing what you can do to uh, advance yourself. And. The other thing is I just relate to you so much as an independent artist where you also, after your art's done, you become a business person because then you're yeah. trying to figure out how do I get people to see my art? <laughs> so, so you're a business person. So you're, you're just wearing multiple hats. So. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you know, I've, um, look, I've had some, um, some feedback in the past, you know, from uh, record labels who they've heard my music uh, as um, as Uriel uh, and got this kind of impression that I'm this um, otherworldly um, fairy type princess um, creature, <laughs> and, uh, and then you know they've they've asked to meet me and I've walked into the room and I've been um, Lauren the businesswoman um, because that's mm -hmm. what I have to be as an independent artist. Uh, and I've actually had the feedback um, from at least least once. I remember it, it was fed through um, uh, a music publisher, I think, who had taken me to this particular meeting with this particular label, um, which I won't name. Uh, and they had said, uh, "Yeah, we we love her music, but she she sort of burst the bubble of what we thought Uriel was when we met her, um, because she was actually, you know, like a, um, you know, surprise, surprise, a normal person." <laughs> Right, like, um, what know, do they expect you to walk yeah, in wearing like a exactly. goblin suit or I, something? Like, I know, I, I think they wanted me to walk in. I don't know, looking like um, Arwen um, uh, from Lord of the Rings or something oh, like okay. that, um, <laughs> and and being a bit kind of airy fairy, um, you know, uh, ethereal um, goddess uh, sort of creature. I think that's kind of what they were expecting, um, and so they they couldn't kind of compute that, um, you know, somebody could switch from one mode to another, which is what I have to do as, as Uriel. You know, if, if I'm put on a stage like I was um, in the Downton Abbey concert I performed in uh, last year, um, you know, I, I have to flip a switch and I can do that because that's just in me. It's, it's a natural switch that I have. I can flip into performer mode and be Uriel. Um, but, you know, the reality is, 95% of the time, um, I have to be Lauren, you know, the, the real woman behind Uriel, um, as a businesswoman, um, trying to make sure that, uh, the art that I create, um, as you said, does actually reach an audience, um, and, and that, uh, any revenue that is owed to me, um, from people consuming that art, um, that, that I get it, um, because I, I have to, you know, to make a living and in order to be able to, uh, make more art in future. Well, Lauren, my friend, this has been a great talk. It's been a pleasure to have you on the Free Your Energy podcast and just learn about your your journey uh, as a human, and then also as the the fairy tale <laughs> Uriel that yes. uh, 
is inspiring to me as an artist. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring to me as an artist and as well as just developing a connection with you as a friend. And mm -hmm. I hope we can get you back on the podcast and just 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 keep you updated with with uh, my readers and listeners here. We want to we want to just stay in touch with you and just continue to learn about your journey. So anytime you have anything you want to talk about uh, new album, you know, new soundtrack or even just if you want to just talk about life like you're always welcome here. Um, on the podcast so thank you so much for for joining me today and thank you too it's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you Thank you.